You all right? So, Sam, you got 30 days? He said, Sam's going to give the steps, and she stands up. Or he's gonna, Sam's going to read how it works. And she goes, well, that's not the Sam I used to know. <laughs> got a sponsor, Sam? You do? Yeah. <laughs> uh, check, you know. <laughs> My name is John, and I am an alcoholic. Congratulations, Alan. You bored? No? You usually get bored after 90 days. Yeah. You are. Oh, God. I was bored, man. You know, because after a while, 90 days or so, you know, you go, ah, Jesus, you know. You get up, you go to work, go to a meeting, go home. Get up, go to work, go to a meeting, go home. You know. The guy's doing that. He's 90 days sober, get up, going to work, go to a meeting, go home. Talking to the sponsor, he said, man, he says, you know, I've been sober 90 days. I get up, go to work, go to me and go home. And he said, there's got to be more life than that. I figure you're supposed to fit into life, you know, enjoying life. He said, the sponsor said, well, do you feel like you're bored? The guy says, yeah, I'm just kind of bored with this whole thing. Get up, go to work, go to me and go home. You know? The sponsor said, well, you know why you're bored? He said, no. This is because you're boring. <laughs> That's one of those things you click in and I think, wait till I sponsor somebody. And I'm going to lay that crap on them, you know. So. About three years later, the guy's doing well. He's sober, got him a good job. You know, got his little Alan wife now. She's at home, running around. One night he's at home, he's watching TV, and his little wife's up and down. She's up and down. She gets up, she goes in the kitchen, comes in, sits down, watch. Up and he finally says, Honey, what's wrong with you? She says, I don't know. I guess I'm just bored. <laughs> Clicks in that guy's head, you know. So he says, Well, honey, do you know do you know why you're bored? <laughs> she looks at him and says, Yeah, it's because you're boring. <laughs> You can't get those Alanons. They always got you covered on that. Deal, you know? And I'm glad to be here. I, uh, you know, last week we talked about the problem. Step one identifies the problem: that we're alcoholic and can't manage our own lives. And uh, I'm living in Reno, Nevada. I'm sober. I'm working with my sponsor, and uh, and I don't know how to take step two. I'm going to run to my sponsor, and I said, you know, how how do you go about taking step two? And he smoked a cigarette a while, and he said, well, I think we found it best if you uh, come to believe that a power greater than yourself will restore you to sanity. <laughs> I know that's what the step says, okay? But how do you take that step? How, how do I? And he smoked a cigarette a while, and he said, well, I don't know, Johnny. I really think we found it best if you'll if you'll come to believe that a power greater than yourself is your And I thought, obviously the guy has not worked the steps diligently. So I thought I'd help him. I said, you know, I was in a discussion meeting, Don, and and they were talking about step two, and this gal shared that what her sponsor had her do. Her sponsor had her go home and write down on a piece of paper all the characteristics of her God, the God she had. 
And the God she had was a very judgmental God. He was a scorekeeping God. He was a vengeful God. She wrote all these characteristics about this terrible God that she had that was sitting up on a throne in heaven, judging her, keeping score, marking down, punishing her for her wrongdoing. She wrote all this stuff about that God. And then she got another piece of paper out and she wrote down all the characteristics of the kind of God she wanted. And the kind of God she wanted was a very loving God, very merciful God, very omnipotent, very forgiving. All these great characteristics of that God. And then she had her old God and she took him to the fireplace and burned him up. And then she had her new God. I said, you think I ought to do something like that? And he smoked a cigarette for a while and he said, well... He said, if you got nothing to do this afternoon, it won't hurt. He said, but uh, we've really found it best if you will come to believe that a power greater than yourself will destroy the sin. And then he said, John, he said, let me tell you, when you, when you read through these steps, just read the dark spots. There's nothing between the lines. We've looked with a black light. Nothing there. There's no hidden messages in, the, in, that, in that book. He said, and what step two says, that's our first step on faith. Okay? Step two is a, first, a faith step. What's faith? And I said, I don't know. I guess it's a strong belief. He said, yeah, it's a strong belief. He said, but let's, let's take that, that uh, other definition out of the other big book. And what the, what the Carpenter's book says is that faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Substance of things hoped for, evidence of things not seen. <laughs> okay, that makes a lot of sense. And he said, well, he said, have you ever seen an ad in the newspaper for Sears or some company? And it says, come and save. And if you go down there to the store and you talk to those people while they're down there, you say, what are you doing down there? And he said, well, I, they got a sale going. I came to save. He says, see, step two is an invitation for you to come to AA to believe that a power greater than yourself can restore you to sanity. See, if you come to AA and you sit your butt in that chair, the first thing that will happen is that you'll hear things you hope are true. Substance of things hoped for. People will share stuff in a meeting and say, God, I hope that's true. If it worked for him, it probably worked for me. Substance of things hoped for. If you stick around long enough, you'll see evidence of things not seen. See, I've never seen God, but I see evidence. I want to tell you, there are more miracles in this room tonight and more proof and more evidence of a power greater than yourself than Oral Roberts will ever perform. You know? It's incredible. I mean, look what we get to see. The guy, how do we get in here, man? Busted. When we get in here with nothing, no dignity, no self-respect, no jobs, no money, no place to live, just nothing, bankrupt in every department. And what happens? Well, pretty soon, you know, you don't drink and you come to a meeting and uh, you get a month sober, 30 days sober, you get a job. Things get back. For 20 years, we've been trashing our life and in like six months, your whole life gets put back together real quick. Evidence of things not seen. See, I can see God working in your life a lot easier than I can see him working, working in mine. I don't see him doing much in mine at all. You know? But I see him doing stuff in yours. 
I can see it. I can see God working in your life when I can't see Him working in mine. Why? I mean, it's incredible what we get to see. Evidence of things not seen. What happens when you quit going to meetings? You just go bonkers. You know, you go to a meeting, you're okay. You know, you want to take a step, you just go to a meeting. Why? You call your sponsor, you're crazy. Your sponsor says, well, go to a meeting. I'll meet you after me. You go to a meeting, you're okay. You ever do that? You ever, you ever call your sponsor up just crazy? You say, I need to talk to you. He says, okay, I'll meet you at the meeting. We'll talk after the meeting. So you go to the meeting. After the meeting, comes up and says, now what did you need? About what? <laughs> well, you said you had a real problem. You wanted to talk. Uh, golly, I guess it's okay. You know? You're okay. You didn't even remember what was bothering you. You know? And we don't even know what goes on in here. We don't have a clue what goes on in here. And we can't remember what goes on in here. You ever do that? After the meeting, you're leaving, you're going home. It's a great meeting. You're all pumped up. You're driving home. You stop at the gas station to get gas and maybe buy some, buy a Coke or something. You go in there and run into somebody from the group. You say, you missed it, man. We had a great meeting at the class house. Great meeting. Really? What? What did you talk about? <laughs> God, it was a great meeting. You just missed a great meeting. You know? Who spoke? Oh, God. Uh, who spoke? Uh, it was a great meeting, man. It was just a great meeting. You know? Can't even remember a lot. But it works. It always works. You're restored to standing. What happens when you quit going to meetings? You just go nuts. You go to meetings, you're okay. Quit going to meetings, you go nuts. You go to meetings, you're okay. Something happens in here. You're restored to sanity when you go to the meetings. You quit going to meetings long enough, you have the ultimate sanity, and, and you'll drink. You know? And as I said, we don't even know. And even old-timers don't know what goes on in here. And their timing's terrible, by the way. <laughs> you ever notice that about those old-timers? You're sitting in a newcomer's meeting, right? Got a newcomer's meeting working. Talking about step one. Newcomer's there. If I call him, he says, oh, God. He's crying. A week ago. A week ago tonight. I'm in a hot tub. Five naked women. <laughs> and all the booze I can drink. Some old timer chimes in and says, You never have to live like that again. <laughs> you don't have to go through that anymore. Newcomer says, Oh, thank God. <laughs> How's that work, you know? That's a program of attraction, right? <laughs> so we've got a book for you here to replace that stuff with this book. <laughs> but it always happens. It always happens in the meeting, you know? And you don't go to the meeting, you miss it. And we don't even know what it is you're going to miss because we don't know what happens. Because it's a miracle. And you can't explain a miracle. Okay? That's why it's a miracle. And that's why you can't explain AA. Because... It's a miracle. See, if you could explain it, it wouldn't be a miracle, would it? The very fact you can't explain something is what makes that thing a miracle. If you could explain it, it wouldn't be a miracle. I mean, think what would happen if Moses tried to explain his miracles. Can't you see that? <laughs> Moses is out there now. He's got the children of Israel, right? The children of Israel have been held captive down in Egypt for 247 years. A lot, a lot of people didn't know that. I know that. Okay. So Moses goes down there in Israel. He's got he's in Egypt. He's got the children of Israel. He's taking them out of Egypt back to the promised land. Right? Y'all saw that movie? 
<laughs> I know you didn't read the book, okay? So it's out of movies, right? Some of us got children visual, they get out, and now they get stopped. They get stopped at the Red Sea. They don't know how to cross the Red Sea. My God, it's a big sea, you know. They don't know whether to walk around it. They're going to build a boat, sail across it. They don't know how to cross it. So they're debating that, talking about it. And all of a sudden, the people come around and say, Moses, we've got a major problem. Pharaoh has changed his mind. He's coming after to get us. What do we do? Moses says, I don't know, man. I'll go talk to God, find out. So Moses goes talk to God. He calls this group in. He's got his consultants in his tent. He's got his consultants. He's got his, he's got his medical consultant. He's got his psychiatric consultant. He's got his uh, legal consultant. He's got his engineering consultant. And, of course, you've got to have your public relations guy, <laughs> public relations consultant there. And he's got him in. He says, okay, here's, I've talked to God. Here's the plan. I'm going to stand up on this rock. I'm going to take this staff of Aaron. I'm going to wave the staff over the Red Sea. Then I don't know how this is going to work, but the Red Sea is just going to part. It's going to part, open up like that. I know it's underwater now, but when it does part, the ground will be dry. Damnedest thing you've ever seen in your life. The ground's going to be dry, and then all of us are going to march through there. Now, there were three million of them. There were three million seven hundred thirteen thousand six hundred forty-two. A lot of people didn't know that. I know that. So three million of them are going to march through the Red Sea on dry ground. And then when Pharaoh comes after to get us, the water's going to fall down and drown them all. What do you think of the plan? <laughs> can't, just, can't you see those consultants sitting there? Medical guy says, Moses, oh my God, Moses, terrible plan. Terrible plan, Moses. Rock, don't try it. Think about this, Moses. We got a lot of old people. We've been held captive down there for 200 years. Okay? These old people got asthma. <laughs> Some of them got asthma, bad problem asthma. I don't care if it's dry ground. You stack that water. If it's going to be humid, you make it march through that. Asthma is going to flare up. going to kill him, Moses. Rotten plan. <laughs> bad plan, Moses. Don't even try it. And the, the psychiatric consultant says, Moses, oh, God, terrible, terrible. Don't do it. Do not do it, Moses. Forget about the old people. Hell, they're going to die anyway. Okay? <laughs> but think about this, Moses. we got a lot of youngsters here. we got a lot of little youngsters. These children. These children, Moses, do you realize the psychological trauma? You stack that water up. You force them to march through that water like that. That's going to scar them emotionally. It's, uh, hell, that firm adult children, Moses, just get them through the rest of their lives, Moses. Just rotten plan. Don't even try it, Moses. The engineering guy says rotten plan. Rotten plan. Legal consultant says rotten plan. He says, other side, other side of the Red Sea is a foreign country. we got immigration problems. They'll send us back. Rotten plan, Moses. The engineering guy says, terrible plan, terrible plan. You realize that how many pounds per you stack the water pound? It'll never work, Moses. won't work. Only guy on Moses' side, PR guy. He says, Moses, baby. I love that plan. Love that plan. You pull that off, I can promise you five pages in Genesis. Well, you can't explain a miracle. That's why you can't explain how AA works. You'll try. You try hard. You go to work tomorrow, those of you got jobs. You go to work, and you'll say, have a good night. Oh, had a great night, man. Had a great night. What'd you, oh, we went to AA. You know, I'm in AA. I went to AA. And what did you do? Oh, man, was, this guy down there is doing real good, man. He was doing great. And he got drunk, okay? He got drunk. He lost his business, lost his wife, lost his house, lost his career, did a lot of, wrote a lot of hot checks to people, got in all kinds of trouble, stole some stuff, ended up in Huntsville. Spent two years in Huntsville. God, it was great. You know? 
You active in that organization? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Real active. Got a sponsor and everything. Who's your sponsor? Oh, can't tell you. No, can't tell you. Anonymous program, you know. But a lot like the guy that spoke. You know? He was doing real good. My sponsor was doing real good. Made a lot of money, and then he got drunk. Man, he got drunk. He lost his business, lost his house, lost his wife, lost his career. Ended up in Huntsville. He spent two years in Huntsville. Never did take. Kept writing a lot of hot checks, stole stuff. Finally, ended up out in Terrell State Mental Hospital. That's my sponsor. <laughs> and I listened to every word he said, right? <laughs> Think about who you're listening to. It's crazy, you know? And then a lot of you have problems with that step two. Say, nah, not insane. I don't need to go to those meetings, you know. You want to take step two. You don't need to do a lot of writing. Just go to the meeting. Go to the meeting, you'll be okay. Because you'll hear things you hope are true. Stick around long enough, you'll see evidence that they are. We don't know how that works, but it works, you know. So I'm going to meetings every single day. And I'm taking step three on. I took step three on my knees with my sponsor. Turn my will and life over to the care of God. And when I did that, living in Reno, Nevada, we knelt down in his little apartment and we said the third step prayer and we turned my, I turned my woman life over to the care of God. But there were three little things that my mind told me God doesn't care about. Now, I never asked anybody, does God care about this stuff? And I just figured it out. And they weren't big things, they were just little things. First one was uh, money. God didn't care about money. Man, I never asked anybody, does God care about money? I just figured out. Because God loves the rich and the poor, right? He didn't care how much money you got. So if God didn't care about money, I had better manage my money. So I managed my money. And the second thing was uh, employment. God doesn't care what you do for a living, as long as it's honest. I never asked anybody, does God care what you do for a living? I just figured it out. Because God loves the ditch digger and he loves the bank president, right? He didn't care. It's not that petty. So I'm managing my employment. And the last one was relationships. And God didn't care who you date. I just threw that, that out there because I figured, okay, God's probably not interested in the same kind of date I'm interested in. Okay? So, just that. But everything else I turned over to God. Okay? Except for those three little areas. Money, employment, and women. Okay? But everything else I turned over to God. Now, the incredibly sad thing about what, what my mind just did to me is the only time I've ever had to call my sponsor late at night and I'm crazy, bonkers, the source of that pain has always come from one of three areas. <laughs> it's always money, employment, or women. Okay? One of the, in fact, it's, you're only going to have two, the rest of your life, if you're sober, you're only going to have two problems. And it's either going to be, it's either going to be uh, uh, money or it's going to be uh, women or men or relationships. Okay? That's it. In fact, my, because uh, you haven't figured out employment and money are real closely related. Okay. They're, they're connected. They're, they are connected. You got a job, hell, you're okay, you know. I really believe, and I really mean that. It doesn't matter what your job's doing. You got a job, you're okay. You don't got a job, you're screwed. That's all there is to it. Then I don't care what the job pays. It doesn't matter what it pays. You got a job, you're okay. And so I, uh, if, so it's, it's, it's always going to be money or relationships. In fact, my sponsor 
because I'd climb up and it'd take me an hour to get around to the problem. So he said, John, we're going to color coat your problems. So here's the code. We're going to color code these things. So when you call up, I'm going to ask you, which color is it? <laughs> and you tell me. And that'll save us an hour of conversation. Okay? So uh, it's, it's pink or green. <laughs> okay? <laughs> I think I got a pink problem and a green problem. And uh, a lot of times the green problem will really affect the pink. <laughs> really affect the pink. So anyway, I'm uh, I'm living in Reno, Nevada, and I'm 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 uh, I'm going to AA a lot, and I've taken the third step on my knees with my sponsor, and to my will, my life, order the care of God, except for those three little areas: money, employment, and women. So employment-wise, I'm managing my employment by not working, not working. <laughs> I'm playing poker for a living, and uh, so that's that's my management of my employment. And my money, I'm managing my money. I don't have a lot of money, but I'm managing it the best I can because that's a real part of playing. You better manage your money if you're playing poker for a living. And uh, so I'm managing my money. And relationship-wise, I've been sober two months and uh, fell in love. Oh, God. Whew. I can just think about it right now. I'm in love again. Because this was the real deal. This was the real deal. Beautiful gal. Beautiful gal. Uh, picked her up in a bar. <laughs> well, the book says, hey, it's okay to go there if you have reason to go. <laughs> Check your motives. If you have reason to be there, it's okay to go there. You you can go anywhere and you'll be... I had reason to be there, you know. I succeeded. Beautiful gal. She was not an alcoholic, to my knowledge. She's a hypochondriac. <laughs> she really was. They're a lot like alcoholics, but instead of going to the bar at night, they like to go to the hospital. Okay? <laughs> they do. They go to the hospital. Every, I'm taking this guy out of the hospital every other night. We're going to the hospital, you know. She's check, have her checked out. Finally, the nurse comes out, and she's got a big, thick file. She said, Val is very, very sick. No, nope, we've been here every night this week. She, said, well, she went through her file. This guy had 17 operations. She's 30 years old, 17 operations, you know. You know, my mind said, this is great. <laughs> this is great. I mean, think about that. I'm, I, I'm an alcoholic. I got a real disease. She just thinks she's sick. <laughs> this will be good. What we do, we, we get these, you know, I'll get real active in Alcoholics Anonymous. She can get real active in hypochondriac anonymous. And we'll just get well together. That's what we do. Right? We get all these sick people. We group them together. And then we support each other. And we love each other. And we get well together. This will be great. You know, I'll just be a part of her recovery. She can be a part of my recovery. This is going to be wonderful. You know? Oh, sick. <laughs> Painful. Oh, God. Hurt. Hurt. Oh. God, I just, I just couldn't even sleep. You know, I lost 35 pounds. I'm just sitting there and just hurt, pain. I talk to my sponsor about it all the time, you know. And we fell in love on the third date and moved in. We moved in on the third date, you know. I just wonder, how can alcoholics do that? You know, we can fall in love just like that and move in on the third date, you know. And uh talking to my friend Bob Art. Bob explained to me, he's got more time sober than I do, so I listen to Bob. And he said, uh, we got that, that seven to one deal working. I said, what do you mean seven to one? He says, it's like a dog's life. I mean, you know, seven 
One year to a human is like seven years to a dog. And that's the way it is with alcoholics and dating. One date to an alcoholic is equivalent to seven dates for the normie. <laughs> and of course, if you're dating an alcoholic, you have that compounding effect. <laughs> so after the third date, hey, you've been dating a year, you know? It's 49 dates. That's 49 dates you've been dating a year, you know? So you fall in love on the third date. It makes a lot of sense to me because I always fell in love on the third date. And so, and we moved in together. <laughs> Pain, hurt. Talked to my sponsor about it. One out. One out of the deal. Can't get out. You ever notice you can't get out of a sick deal? You can't leave a sick deal. No. Can't leave it. Mm. My, my sponsor kept trying to explain to me, two dinglings don't make a bail. You know? <laughs> but I can't leave. Can't. I talked to my sponsor said, he said, well, leave. I said, I can't leave. You don't understand. I love her. <laughs> You're so damn old, you don't even know what love is anymore. So I love her. I can't leave, man. Besides, she's got five kids, you know? That sounds a lot worse than it really is because she had five kids, but they had taken all the men children away from her. <laughs> she had a thing about hating them, so she abused them a lot. And uh, so she only had two daughters at home. The other, I, the... Hurt. Pain. God, I want out. He said, well, leave. I can't leave. He said, you got a car? I said, yes. He said, well, back your car. <laughs> Open the trunk. Put your shit in and go. <laughs> I love her. I love her. I can't leave. I can't leave her. You cannot leave a sick deal. By the way, that's why it's sick. One of the first clues, if you, can, if you can't leave it, it's sick. You know, and so I, but I'm, I'm sober, I'm going to meetings a lot. My sponsor finally got quit, he wouldn't talk to me about it anymore. So I'm not talking about it anymore, I'm talking about anything else, but that, that's a sick deal. Shouldn't be in there, you're going to get drunk. But he said, just do what you want to do, but I'll talk to you about anything else but that. I'm going to talk to you about that. So I'm sober now, Alcoholics Anonymous, I've been sober going on 11 months now. I'm, I'm uh, going to meetings, a lot of meetings. I'm managing my employment by not working. I'm managing my money by playing poker with the money I got, and I'm involved in this sick deal living with this gal, and I'm sober 11 months, and uh, she kicked me out. <laughs> she wasn't as sick as I thought she was, was she? <laughs> what happens? I, I lost all my money. Okay, so there you go. The, the green's gone, now I've got a pink problem. Okay? That's all there is to it. So she kicks me out and got no place to stay. I had to sleep in my car that night. Got up the next morning, went into uh, central office, see Don, my sponsor. I'm talking, I'm telling him about, man, I lost all my money, got no money now, I'm busted, and I got no place to stay. I had to sleep in the car. Valerie's kicked me out, got no place to live. And he's sitting there smoking his cigarette. He said, oh, thank God. <laughs> I said, Don, I said, wait a minute. <laughs> This is, I know there are no big deals in AA, but this is kind of a big deal, Don, okay? It's, this isn't just a little cash flow crunch we're talking about here, okay? It's not like I just got to get by till payday and then get a paycheck. And I'll be, I got no payday coming because I got no job, okay? I said, I lost all my money. I sleep in my car last night. I got no place to live. got no place to stay. got no money and nothing to eat. And he smoked a cigarette and he said, oh, thank God. 
He said, Johnny, so you've been around here walking around like a hot shot now in AA for 11 months. you got a great meeting schedule. He said, but now you get to find your source that's going to take care of you the rest of your life. And we call that source God. This is going to be great. <laughs> great. <laughs> so what do I do? Where, 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 what AA bank do you go to? <laughs> they have not told me about the AA bank to go get the loan to put your life back together. And he said, no. He said, the first thing you're going to want to do is you're going to want to practice the seventh tradition in your own life. I said, what's the seventh tradition? You didn't know about the traditions. <laughs> no, I had just been through the steps, and now we've got traditions. And he said, well, the seventh tradition says that you're going to be self-supporting through your own contributions, declining outside help. Ah. Okay, what exactly does that mean? <laughs> and he said, that means you don't borrow any money. You don't borrow any money. You don't, I don't want to hear about you borrowing 20 bucks from another AA. You borrow 20 bucks from another AA, get yourself a new sponsor. Because that's not your source. I don't want you to borrow money from your mom. In fact, I don't want you to call your mom. You call your mom, you'll cry, she'll cry. I've done that deal a hundred times. You know, she'll send you some money, may kill you. So you don't call, you don't borrow money from your mom, don't talk to her. You need to talk to your mom, you tell me, I'll call her for you. <laughs> or you're going to go to your sponsor and say, will you call my mommy? No, you're not going to do that. You're not, not going to do that. So he said, the next thing is, although you're a bum, it is not God's will that you look like a bum. That is not God's will. It's God's will that you start looking and act like what you are, which is one of God's kids. So I had to shave every day. I'd get up in the morning, I'd sleep in, the, I'd sleep in my car, and I'd get up in the morning, and I'd walk down to the gas station. It was a shell station I usually went to, and I'd walk down to the shell station, and I would shave. I had to shave every day because he wouldn't let me not shave. So I'm not going to look like a bum. I'm going to look like one of God's kids. And then I'd put on a little tie. I had two outfits I rotated every other day. And I'd wash it out in the sink. I'd take a little sponge bath. And then I would go put my little tie on. And I'm supposed to go out and look for work. And I said, well, what, what am I going to, what kind of job am I going to get? I'm going to work for three and a half years. And he said, well, he said, uh, do you remember the last real job you had? I said, yeah. He said, what did you do? I said, well, I sold insurance and real estate and equities and Stuff like that. And he said, well, then you go to the banks and you go to the insurance companies, you go to the real estate companies and you go to the brokerage houses and you apply for a job. <laughs> Bad. Don't do that, guys. If you're new, don't do it. Let me say that. That's, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> you got to be bonded to do that. So they got all these big, long forms to fill out. You know, and they want to know a lot of stuff. None of their business. <laughs> they want to, like it says... Address. <laughs> they find no humor in a license plate when you put that down there. <laughs> not familiar with MD 237. Where's MD 237? You know, bad deal. You know. And uh, but I did. I did right I went there and applied for a job, and I couldn't get a job. And this was 19. 82. In 1982, the economy was very depressed. 
we're going through a bad recession. Dallas was doing great. You know, oil was at 40 bucks a barrel, and when oil was at 40 bucks a barrel, Dallas does great. You know, the rest of the country really sucks wind, but Dallas is doing good. <laughs> and uh, they just shut down two casinos that made some money, money tree and put 750 people out of work. That's a lot of people in a small community. And I couldn't find a job. And I went to my sponsors. I can't find a job. I've been there. Well, I feel shitty. Can't find a job. He said, well, then go get a shitty job. <laughs> you know? So I went, I, tried, I applied to be a cook's helper. You know? That's just a short form to fill out. They just want to know their name. That's all they want. Just your name. If you got a green card, we're okay. Okay? And uh, I, so I go in there. I'm clean shaven. Got my little tie on. I apply to be a cook's help. And the guy looks at the thing, looks at me and says, oh, Johnny, I'm sorry, but, you know, I hire you. You'll be here a couple weeks till you find a better deal, and then you're out of here. He said, I, I can hire this little Laotian refugee. We had a lot of Laotian refugees in 82. And he said, he, he can't speak English. He'll be here forever. I said, well, I'm, I'm really thinking about a career change in the kitchen area. I want to learn from the ground up, you know. But I just couldn't get a job. Couldn't get a job. And uh, I lost, I got down to 135 pounds because I wasn't eating. Didn't have any money to eat. And I used to walk around the casinos. Anytime I had any spare time, I'd walk around, mostly at night. Walk up and down all the casinos in, in the slot machines and look at the bottom of the slot machine tray. Because people would hit a jackpot and they'd run, scoop up their money and run off to show their friends. And they'd accidentally leave a quarter or a dime or a nickel, sometimes a dollar, in the bottom of the slot machine. You know, you can find the money. And you can make about $2 doing that. <laughs> Take 18 hours, but you can really you can find some money doing that. You know, Walk up and down rows and rows of slot machines looking for nickels, dimes, and quarters. You know? On Friday... Friday was a big day for me. I got to sweep out a bar. There's a little lady that won a, owned a bar, 751 bar on South Virginia Street. She had me coming in on a Friday, and I would straighten up her liquor closet and sweep out her bar, and she'd pay me, she'd feed me lunch and pay me five bucks. She said, hey, never could get sober. She died drunk. But she let me come in there every Friday and sweep out her bar and straighten up her liquor closet for five bucks and lunch. And that's when I got to eat. And it wasn't working, you know? It just wasn't working. And I'd go to my sponsor and I'd, and I'd talk to him about it. He'd say, you know, just don't quit before the miracle happens. I hate that crap. <laughs> you know, when you're in it, it ain't ever going to happen. And I can't figure out what's wrong because I go to these meetings and I see other people, their life's working out okay. I've been sober over a year and I'm living in my car. I got no job. I got no money. I got no place to live. I'm 135 pounds. And these other guys, they come in after me and they, and they got jobs. And, and they're working out okay. And it doesn't seem to be working for me. And, and my sponsor gave me some great advice when you're in a jackpot like that. He explained to me, he said, we can't help somebody do something we haven't done. So he said, you don't go down to the Dryers Club, Skid Row Clubhouse, at 10 o'clock in the morning with all those other guys that are employed and ask them how to get a job. Because they don't know. If they did, they'd go get a job. You know? So he said, you only talk to two people about your problems. You can, three people, actually. He said, you can talk to me about your problem. You can talk to uh, my sponsor, his sponsor, which was Bob H. Or Bob's sponsor, which was P.T. Those are the only three you can talk to. He said, we're not going to do this by group. Okay, we don't sponsor by group. He said, you can go to uh, ten different people, all with long-term sobriety. 
and ask them the same question about your problem, and you'll get ten different answers. And you know what? All ten answers will be right for somebody, but not you. Because, <laughs> see, those other guys, they don't have the whole picture of who I am. But my sponsor does, and, and his sponsor does, and his sponsor does. So there's the only, only three you can talk to about your problem. So he says, and when you go to an AA meeting, he said, AA is not a dumping ground for your misery. You go in there and you cry and you want to tell everybody about how tough it is on you. He said, frankly, we love you, but we really don't care. <laughs> you know? He said, uh, there's a topic for a discussion. If you have nothing to share on the topic, then you pass. So uh, I said, well, he finally did tell me this. He said, now, at your men's stag meeting, he said, I've never lived under the bridge. He says, you might ask some people how to live under the bridge, because I don't know how to do that. And they might, there's some people down there that I know know how to do that. So I'm at my men's stag meeting, and I asked them in the meeting. When it came to my turn to share, I said, I got a pass, but I did, do want to talk to somebody after the meeting about how to live under the bridge, because I don't know how to do that. And uh, I had a bunch of guys come up after the meeting. <laughs> and they said, man, it's no big deal, man. All you got to do is go down there to the blood plasma center, sell your blood. You can get seven. Back then, we got seven bucks for our blood. Sell your blood at the blood plasma center. And then you can go to the Social Security office and apply for food stamps, and they'll give you some food stamps that day. Some emergency food stamps that day. You can sell those on the street. Hey, hey you can have 20 bucks by tomorrow night. I was so excited I couldn't sleep, you know. <laughs> I'm pumped now. So I go down there. I park around the corner from the blood plasma center. I'm going to go in and sell my blood in the morning. And Actually, I was third. There were two guys that slept on the steps. So I was third guy to get in there. And uh, they wouldn't take my blood. <laughs> okay. They want, to ha- they want you to have two forms of ID. And one of them has to have a picture. You have to have a picture. They want to know whose blood they're getting. Okay. And, and I didn't have a picture ID. I had a driver's license. But it didn't have a picture on it. It was a special driver's license. It was. It It said right on it, special driver's license. Don't only give it to special people. Allows you to drive during special hours, you know. So mine didn't have a picture on it, and uh, so they wouldn't take my blood. But I'm not discouraged. No big deal. I'm going to go over to the Social Security office, get my food stamps. Go over to the Social Security office, get my food stamps. They, They wouldn't give me any food stamps. Okay. You have to have a social security card. Okay. I knew my number, but I lost my wallet years ago, and, and, and my card was in it. I didn't have a card. I said, well, I know my number. And they said, well, we need the card. I said, I don't have the card. I lost my card. They said, well, fill this out. We'll mail it to you. <laughs> and how long will that take? Six weeks. I'll be dead in six weeks, you know. <laughs> so it just wasn't working. I couldn't figure out what was going on, you know. And and I was just nuts. Because I'm going to meetings, I'm walking a lot, and I'm and, and, uh, sitting in my car, and I, I see God work on other people's lives, but not mine. It doesn't make any sense to me. I've done A as good as I know how to do A, and I used to bounce in and out of, of wanting to commit suicide and being afraid I was going to die. <laughs> Nothing crazy about that, is there? You know, the thing I was afraid of. I, I, I was afraid because it got to be November and it gets cold, and I thought I'm going to die in my car. They're going to find me dead in my car because I'm not eating. I'm going to get I'm going to get a cold, and then I have no diet, so it'll be pneumonia.
dead in my car. I'm going to die in my car. And I didn't mind dying, but what I was afraid of is that they wouldn't know who to, who to notify. Because, yeah, they'd find John already died in his car. Okay, who do we notify? Well, I don't know. Somebody will call for him. Nobody's going to call for me. I don't want anybody there. You know, so how do they know? So I, I tell my sponsor, I said, you know, they're going to find me dead in my car and they want to know who to call. Is that what you're afraid of? You're afraid they won't know who to call if they catch you dead? I said, yeah. <laughs> so we got a piece of paper and it was in case of emergency, call Don. He wrote his number on there. He said, what's your mom's name? I said, Betty Jo. wrote Betty Jo. What's her number? Wrote her number down there. He said, okay, now put this in your wallet. If you die, they'll know who to call. <laughs> I felt a whole lot better. You know, I really did. I don't worry about that anymore. You know, I felt, felt pretty good about it. You know? But it just wasn't working. I couldn't make any sense out of it. You know? I'd done it all. Uh, and and I'm going to A, I'm going to a 12-step. Because it was embarrassing, too, to walk to a 12-step call. Because the guy's sober by the time you get there. You know? <laughs> it was a bad deal. They, they used to always send me to the bus station because it was in the middle of town. And they said, let's send John to the bus station. And he can get down there. and Because uh, we had a lot of drunk call from the bus station. and, and uh, but I, It just wasn't working. And I'd done it as good as I know how to do it. I'm over a year sober. I'm going on 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 a uh, year and a half sober. And it's not working. And I don't know why it's not working for me. And I'm petrified. I'm scared to death. And I'm crying a lot. you know. And I'm 135 pounds. And I just don't know what to do. And I'm tired. You don't sleep real good. I'm tired. And I'm out there. It's November and it's snowing and it's cold. And somebody loaned me a sleeping bag so I could sleep in my in the front seat of my car in a sleeping bag. And I'm out there at the state hospital where I got my big book. And I cried through the whole meeting. And it's snowing outside and I'm crying. And they call on me to share that night. It was a gratitude meeting. <laughs> and there's a guy in there I don't like. There's this little guy. I do not like this guy. Okay? He's a little short. He's about 5'2". He's a little short Irish sheep herder from the Bronx. He had the damnedest accent you've ever heard in your life. You know? He really did. He really did. And he would come in town every Friday into AA. And he'd always put on, he had a silk bandana. Brand new cowboy hat, a silk shirt, and he had these starch wranglers on, and he wore cowboy boots with spurs. I swear to God, he wore spurs in there, and you could hear him coming down the hall, clicking those spurs. In. And I did not like this guy at all. And they called on him to share before him, and he, he was sharing. He'd been in Harris. He'd come in town early, went over to Harris. He's walking around Harris, and he found, down a slot machine roll, and he found a free pull. Now, on a slot machine, there are two little lights. One says deposit coin. One says coin accepted. A lot of times, people are playing two, three machines, you know, at a time. And they'll hit a jackpot. And they'll grab their money and run off to show their friends. And they'll forget they put a dollar over here in this machine. And so there's a little light that says coin, coin accepted on there. And uh, it's called a free pull. And if you look around, nobody's ready. You pull the handle. Maybe you win something, you know. And he found a free pull in Harris on a dollar slot. Pull the handle. Hit a $600 jackpot. And he was so grateful because now he could buy a new saddle for his horse. <laughs> Glad God's working in your life, you know. I've been in, I was in Harris and never found that free pole. You know? They called me to share and, and uh, I was grateful for a lot of things I had never thought about. 
and I cried a lot. But I was grateful that uh, when I got divorced, I had some kids and we, we had a little custody battle. I was so grateful the judge had given custody to my ex-wife. I mean, what would I have done if I'd have got custody of my kids? I mean, I can't take care of myself. I'm living in my car. What am I going to do if I got my kids? Boy, I was grateful for that. I'm still grateful to this day. I was grateful that I didn't grow up in an alcoholic environment. I'd heard the stories around the table some of y'all had told about what you went through when you were growing up. I didn't go through any of that stuff. I grew up in a very happy, normal, loving environment. I was grateful for stuff like that. And after the meeting, I'm getting ready to leave to go, and here comes Conklin. Conklin was old money. Family had millions of dollars, whole family money. I saw him come over to see me, and I thought, thank God. It's about time, you know. I knew I knew it happened. He was just waiting for me to hit bottom. And he comes over and puts his arm around me, and he said, God, John, he said, I love you. He said, I hope you get in AA. I said, Conklin, I'm in AA. You know, I've been here going on a year and a half. He said, I know. I said, I guess I hope you work the steps. I hope you take step three. You ain't going to make it. You are not going to make it if you don't take step three. I said, I've taken step three, Don. I took it on my knees with my sponsor. Go ask him. You know that. And he said, oh, John, I don't want to hurt your feelings or offend you because I love you. He said, but... Let me tell you how I know you haven't taken step three. The third step says that we made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care, to the care of God. It means from that point on, God himself is going to take care of you. And the reason why you haven't taken that step is because God takes better care of his kids than the way you're living. Boy, it cut me like a knife. How can you argue with that? You can't argue with that. If you had all the power, would you let your kid live like that? Uh -uh. So if God's not taking care of me, who is? And I said, well, how do you do that? And he says, oh, you can't. (laughs) Thanks for sharing. He said, John, until you accept the fact that you're living in your car, you're not this big shot, you're not a hot shot, you're just a little kid needing someone to take care of him, needing God to take care of him. Until you accept the fact that you're going to stay in your car until God gets you out of the car because lack of power is your dilemma. Until you accept that, you can't surrender it. You see, because until you accept something, until you accept whatever situation you're in is just the way it's supposed to be, until you accept that, you try to change it. You try to fix it, you try to manipulate it, you try to maneuver it. So it's okay. But if it's okay the way it is, then you can surrender it. You can't surrender something you haven't accepted. And you see, you got to accept the fact that you're living in your car and there's nothing you can do about it to get out of your car. And then you got to quit praying for stuff. That'll be the first sign that you've accepted in your life. I said, what do you mean praying for stuff? He said, well, like, are you praying for a job? I said, every night and every day, every morning. He said, you don't need to pray for a job. You don't think God knows you need a job? (laughs) If he doesn't, you better get a new God. Are you praying for something to eat, for food? I said, yes, I'm praying for food. 
You don't need to pray for food. God knows you need to eat. You don't think God knows that? You're praying for a place to live? Yeah. You don't need to pray. God knows you need a place to live. He said, well, then what am I going to pray for? He said, well, I said, if you knew what God wanted you to do, without a doubt, God wants me to go do that. If you knew that beyond a shadow of a doubt, God wants me to do that. And you had the power to go do that. Don't you think you'd be okay? I said, well, yeah, absolutely. He said, then you pray for a knowledge of God's will for you and the power to carry it out. That's what you pray for. And then he's then Conquer made me a promise. And he promised me it's the only promise I've ever gotten out like anonymous. Because they didn't even promise me sobriety when I got here. But Conklin promised me, he said, John, if you can do those two things, accept and pray for knowledge of God's will, he said, I want to promise you, God will start to take care of you, and things will happen so fast, you won't be able to keep up with it. It'll be impossible to keep up with it. And I left there and I was staying at the MGM in the parking lot of the MGM, okay? <laughs> it was a big parking lot. I'd park in that parking lot and then I'd go in the MGM and I'd walk around the casino all night looking for nickels, dimes, and quarters and slot machines up and down the roads because I had my little time. They didn't know. They kicked bums out, by the way. Uh, in, 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 those, in those casinos, if you're a bum, they kick you out. They don't want bums in there. But I look I look pretty good. I got my tie on, clean shaven. They don't know who I am. So I'm walking around up and down rows and rows of slot machines looking for nickels, dimes, and quarters. And uh, then I go out. I go to bed about 4 o'clock in the morning. And it's cold. <coughs> and I, I got in. I slept in the front seat of the car. And I'm scared to death. Because my nose is running. And I know something's got to happen. And I can't get that out of my mind what's Conklin's been telling me. And I'm just petrified because something's got to happen. It's got to happen pretty quick. I ain't going to make it. You know, I'm just scared and I'm tired. And I just can't go on like that anymore. Man, I'm sober and I'm living in my car and I don't see any end of this. It just doesn't seem to work. And uh, my prayer that night wasn't any great shakes. I don't even know what I said, but I know I was just done. And I remember just asking God, God, just let me know what you want me to do. Whatever you want me to do, I'm willing to go do it. Just let me know what it is I'm supposed to do, because I don't know what to do anymore. I've done everything I know how to do, and I'm living in my car. And just let me know what to do, and I'll go do it. And I would have done anything. Anything. And there wasn't any bolts of lightning. You know, I just went to sleep. And I got up the next morning and went down to the Shell Station and shaved and washed my clothes out and put my little tie on. And I went over to the west side <laughs> and checked on a couple applications I'd put in at a convenience store. And went to a meeting downtown at St. Mary's Hospital Saturday. And after the meeting, I'm walking downtown, so I went over to the Hilton. I'm walking around the Hilton, looking for nickels, dimes, and quarters. Walking around there all night. And finally, I'm going, just getting ready to go out to my car, go to bed. It's about 4 o'clock in the morning. I got a job. It's the best job I could have got. Paid me $4 an hour and one meal a day. Now, I don't care if I'd have got a job that paid me $10,000 a month. You know, I had to work a couple weeks to get a paycheck, right? What I've eaten. 
but I got four bucks an hour and one meal a day in the casino. And I went to work graveyard shifts. So I went to work Sunday night. And Monday I got up at 8 o'clock and I ran down to Central Office to see my sponsor, Don. I was so excited. I worked. I'd eaten that night. I had this little job for four bucks an hour and a meal a day. And I'm in the inner group and I'm talking to Don about this. We're crying a little bit, laughing a little bit, drinking coffee. It's about 9 o'clock in the morning. Phone rings. Don grabs the phone. I hear a long pause. He says, well, yeah, I know him. Another long pause. And he says, well, he's sitting right here. Wait just a minute. He handed me the phone. I took the phone to Humphreys, Doc Humphreys. He's a medical doctor. Lives next door to my folks in Utah. And uh, he said, man, John, he said, I can't believe you're there. He said, I was talking to your folks over the weekend, and they were worried sick about you. Because I couldn't call him, you know. <laughs> so he said, uh, they, they told me you're in Reno. And I said, well, uh, I'm going to Reno tomorrow. He said, when I get there, I'll call the cops, see if they got him. And they said, no, we've already called the police station. They don't have him. They don't, you know, so. But call AA. Maybe he's in AA. He's supposed to be in AA. Last time we heard from him, he was in AA. So he said, I got in town this morning. I called AA, and hell, there you are. I said, oh, yeah, I'm sober, you know. Working on a year and a half, sober. And he said, uh, great. He said, uh, are you working? I said, sure. <laughs> Got a job at the Hilton, you know. We never let him know that. He said, well, where are you living? Where are you living? I said, well, I'm, I'm moving. <laughs> he says, have you signed the lease? I said, no, it's not a lease. I'm signing the lease. He said, well, don't sign it. Although he was a doctor, he no longer practiced medicine. He built homes. He built subdivisions and stuff. He said, I'm building a subdivision instead. That's eight miles north of Reno. That's why I'm out here. He said, uh, you'd be doing me a big favor. He said, I've sold a house to a guy. I think it's this guy that's stealing from me at nights and on weekends when nobody's around. Thousands of dollars of paint, lumber, supplies, stuff like that. He said, I think it's him. He said, i got a house right next to his I haven't sold yet. He said, if I turn the utilities on in that house, would you come out there and live in that house? And keep an eye on things at nights and weekends with nobody around. Let me know if that guy's... I said, well... I'll come out and look at it, you know? <laughs> He's doing it. In 48 hours, see, in 48 hours, God had done for me what I can't do for myself. He started taking care of me. In 48 hours. And that promise that Conklin made me that night's come true. You can't keep up with it. A lot of times now, Alex Thomas, we hear about these two time frames. There's God's time and my time. You know, I know we're on God's time. I just wish God would hurry up, you know. I believe in those two time frames, God's time and my time. The difference is, is that God's time is a whole lot quicker than my time. The problem is me getting in the way. I'm the one that's holding the process up, not God. God does not make me prove myself one bit. If I'd have had to prove myself that I was willing to get sober, I'd have died drunk. The minute I turn my will and my life over to the care of God, it's done. The minute it happens, He starts taking care of me. And you can't keep up with it. It's impossible to keep up with it. And I moved to Dallas shortly thereafter that. And my life in Dallas came together real quick. And you cannot keep up with it. The problem has to do 
with me and God and that relationship he and I have. And when that relationship is that God is my father and he's taking care of me and I'm his son and my job is to help his other kids. Whatever it is that help they need. If it's my business, it's helping them in that. If it's an Alcoholics Anonymous, it's helping them with that. If it's on the road and they're broke down, I'm helping them with that. My guy is to help his kids. And it's his job to take care of me. And when that's the relationship I have with my father, he takes care of me and does it infinitely better than I'm able to take care of myself. And we'll talk about the rest of the story next week. Thank you.